Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello and welcome to the New European Podcast. My name is Richard Porritt and I'm joined by Steve Anglesey. Hello, Snowflakes. Hello, hey, Richard. I'm, I, I'm, hello, how are you? Um, I am repeating person, woman, man, camera, TV, because I've been yeah, told right. if I can remember this, then I can become the President of the United States. Okay, man, no, wait a minute, I've got it wrong already, I think. Yeah. What is it? Person, <laughs> woman, person woman, man, camera, man, TV. Camera, TV. And if you okay, can remember I'll... that, I'm going to test you on that at the end of the podcast, and then All we'll right, see good. whether you too can become President of the United States. No, we don't want you two being the President of the United States. Can you imagine? Well, Kanye West wants to be the President of the United States, doesn't he? He does, and I'd much prefer Kanye musically to you two. So, you know, that would be fun. Um, How many children have you got, by the way? Have you got four children or three children? Three. You've got three. So under Kanye West's plan, you would be, you, you'd have three million dollars, wouldn't you? I would. I mean, do we get back? I, I am interested in this, and I'm sure you are, Steve, uh, as well, because um, d- is there a back payment involved, and does it include people who aren't actually U.S. citizens as well? Well, if, like you, if you were a U.S. citizen. Well, I'd does be it moving involve... to the United States if that was a policy. I'd be moving well, exactly. tomorrow. <laughs> and does it involve adoption as well? Ah. Would, you, would you have a scenario where Angelina Jolie and Mia Farrow were making more out of Kanye West than they ever were out of their film careers. Well, I mean, it's an interesting policy. Um, I, I, I don't know, really. I, I, you know, I mean, clearly, um, Kanye West is, is going through some fairly serious issues right now, and yeah, we sure. wouldn't want to. We wouldn't want to um, poke make fun at him. And make light of that. But um, I mean, as a, as policies go, it's it's definitely um, it's bold. You know, definitely headline stuff it's definitely Big headline. idea it would be nice to have somebody as as stable and sensible as Kanye West in the White House I, I can't help feeling it would indeed um right so welcome one and all we've got a packed show actually today so we need to crack on because we've got wow. the wonderful um European writer James Ball who will join us in a few minutes time uh he's going to talk about the Russia report we've then got Matt Withers our roving reporter he's going to He's going to chat to us, and we should also give Matt a hat tip for producing this podcast, which he's been doing very well now for some weeks. Um, he's going to talk to us about sort of end-of-term report, and I have asked him to dress up as a schoolboy. That's got nothing to do with the end-of-term report. I just um, I just really like it when he dresses as a schoolboy. Um, he will be joining us a little That's bit Terry, later. Like, um, Terry Scott used to. 
Terry Scott. I was thinking more, um, more the Crankies, really. Jimmy Cranky, yes. Yeah, and I do make him sit on my knee as well. But um, so, so we will get to these two chaps, and they will cover much of the news for us, I think. Um, and after that, of course, have you got a quiz? So we don't have to bother. Yeah, have you got a quiz? There is a quiz. Yeah, I've bothered with that. Otherwise, well I'm just going to let other people talk. <laughs> well done. Not you. The and then, and then there is, uh, of course, a Brexiteer of the week. But Steve, how's your week been? What, what's what stood out for you? We've had actually, as we were coming on there, we've had some rather startling news releases coming out of number ten, haven't we? Um, well, as I understand it, Dominic Cummings has taken control of all government data, right. so nothing bad can happen there. And the other thing is that the the fifth round of negotiations with the EU have have um, concluded, haven't they? And um, well, I think, hasn't it? Yeah, yeah, it's brilliant. There are <laughs> only, there are only substantial areas of disagreement left. Oh well, that's and we've, and we've missed Boris Johnson's deadline. Um, <laughs> and um, yeah, it's uh, and it's it's. Uh, it's not quite the oven-ready deal that we were led to uh, led to believe, is it? So, oven-ready it is not. I think. Um, in fact, I think it's still alive and kicking, and probably, um, you know, is a long way from the oven. Uh, but there we go. So that's been happening this week. I think do probably. The, the... Do you love the term Australia, by the way? The, an Australia-type deal. Ah, oh, do you know what? The... It's brilliant, isn't it? When I was, I mean, when I was, Australia doesn't have a deal with the EU, does it? So no, no. But do you know what? This used to annoy me when I was, I was very briefly and um, with mixed success, uh, a, a shady, dark lobbyist um, for a couple <laughs> of years, about nine, ten years ago, and um, and I would speak to MP after MP, and they seem to think that if it happens outside the UK, it's a good thing. So they would say they do this thing in Denmark, or they do this thing in Sweden, or they do this thing in Australia. Australia was a big one, and just because they do it over there, <clears throat> we should do it here. It's like um, it's like we don't need to have any of our own ideas. We'll just grab these ideas from here. And it used to absolutely do my head in the amount of times I've had to, uh, you know, we'd be hmm, sure we'd get on the back of this thing that the one of the big things was insurance in Australia. And then when you delve into it, everyone in Australia hates it. You know, just because it happens somewhere else doesn't mean it's any good here, I think, is, my, is what I believe. Anyway, I guess <clears throat> we might as well get straight to it, haven't we, uh, Steve? Because the big news has been the Russia report. James, are you there? Not in Russia. Not in so, Russia. No, I'm in, uh, I'm in North London, of course. Uh, and any rumours to the contrary, you will hear from my lawyers. Are you near Islington? Are there a lot of Remainer elites on the streets, can you see? So uh, I'm, I'm actually in the People's Republic of North Islington. So uh, where, you know, we of course support the EU, but uh, express that by not intervening on it in any meaningful way until <laughs> after decisions are made. Jim, you wrote a, you wrote a, a smashing piece um, for the paper this week, as you do pretty much every week, of course. Um, and I, I guess we wanted to sort of get your take on it, really, because the, these things are often rather difficult to digest. What, what were your hot takes? I think that's what young people say. <laughs> so, um, well, I mean, um, sort of my, my other day job at the Bureau of Investigative Journalism, we were trying to mount a legal action to get this report out before the election. 
Um, but we were also trying to simultaneously say these intelligence and security committee reports are usually really, really dull. Um, they're not sort of known as a savage committee. They're not sort of somewhere that, that regularly takes pot shots at the government. And so it was trying to kind of go to people, this will probably be really dull. You might have to pass it. You might need an expert to sort of look at it and go, hey, this looks boring. But actually for these guys to say this, it wasn't like that at all. It was a really unusually clear and quite dramatic report. Now, it didn't sort of say anything too much like, you know, Brexit, Russia definitely intervened on Brexit or here's all the things they do. It didn't have much information on that front. What it did have was the absolutely sort of shocking fact that not only did the government not do anything to try and look into the integrity of our electoral system, which, you know, is just nothing important, just the absolute fundamental bedrock <laughs> by a democratic society. You know, who really cares about that? Um, but also the intelligence agencies hadn't. And so you had this slightly mad situation where they were trying to get in touch with each intelligence agency and say, well, what have you been doing on this? Uh, and sort of MI5 went, well, isn't that an MI6 thing? Because it's foreign interference. MI6 was going, well, it's GCHQ because misinformation happens on the internet. And in the end, they teamed up and decided that our front line of defense against a sustained set of information operations from Russia designed to divide us, to make us lose faith in our society, lose faith in our government, and an ongoing attack. At the front line of that was the Department of Culture, Media and Sport, who promptly... Huh kind of panicked and went, you know, where, where the guys who do cricket and Ofcom, you know, we are not the front line of defending democracy. Um, and so quite rightly, the intelligence and security committee called them all sort of knaves and cowards. What I'd say on that, James, is where I think in, the, in this country and we're, we're all of similar ages, you're a bit younger than us, James, I would imagine, but I, I've always sort of believed that we were pretty good at this. We were pretty good at intelligence and, spy stuff and all that kind of thing have i just been sold this sort of james bond vision of of the fact or, or you know and this uh, john le Carey sort of vision of we're actually pretty good at this one on top of it and the actual fact is that we're just you know our agents are sat around looking for an easy life i think we relatively speaking we actually are quite good at this it's just other places are really really bad at it um, but it is also, our spies have got this excellent wheeze where almost no one is allowed to uh, scrutinise them on anything because they just make it all classified, um, which is great. I wish, I wish we could do that in other aspects of, uh, of life, you know, sort of. That's like Steve's that HR report. Yeah, who broke <laughs> that dish? Who hasn't done the uh, thing? You know, it's, uh, how many drinks did you have last night? It'd be great if we could get out of that stuff. Um, I think part of the problem is that a lot of our senior spies are political animals and they knew that with this government or with the last one, there was nothing you could do to annoy them more than say, I think we need to really look into uh, conduct during the Brexit referendum. Now, we should be clear, like for all that 5248 is quite close, it is 1.3 million votes. No one serious really thinks that interventions could have swung that many people. It's incredibly unlikely. Um, 
Brexit probably happened because Leave ran a really clear, sharp, if dishonest campaign and Remain ran something that sounded like the small print at the end of a radio advert. But it doesn't have to change the result for electoral interference to matter. It's made it, the fact that we're talking about it now shows it's worked and it's divided us. And it's incredibly irresponsible for the government to sort of put their own egos and their own sort of dislike of Remainers above actually trying to rebuild the country against an actual adversary trying to separate us. It's utter, utter neglect. Yeah. I mean, how do you think that that's going to play out, James? Because obviously they have, you know, no sooner did the report come out and it called for the intelligence and the security agencies to, to go back and reassess this. No sooner had that come out than, than Boris Johnson was there saying they absolutely weren't going to do it and it was all the only people who wanted them to do it were, were people from Islington um, like you. Um, is, it, is, that a, is it a tactical error to do that? Does it just add more fuel to the fire or do you just, or do you think that they can just ride this out and Labour will be too scared to pick it up because they are running scared of stuff that involves Brexit. So I will, I will stress I grew up first at the Terrace House and then a farm in good old uh, Yorkshire and Halifax, uh, you know. It's, uh, I've, I've only uh, come down to Islington to try to, you know, take back control. Um, but I think the committee was right to put that we should look backwards at that result. I think if I was them, I would have also said we should have looked for interference in the 2017 and 2019 elections, um, especially because we know Russia doesn't particularly do this because they love Brexit or hate other things. They do it to wind us up and separate us. And so one of their interventions in the 2019 election was publicising a sort of hacked and leaked document uh, with some information on US trade talks, which Labour then made a very big deal of. That wasn't because they wanted Corbyn to win particularly or they wanted um, to save our NHS for us. They did it because they knew it would stir the pot. Um, what we sort of need to do is we know that we know who Dominic Cummings is. We know who Boris Johnson is. They're going to do their clown show and ignore this incredibly serious report and their core duty as the current sort of people running the government to protect our democratic institutions. We have seen it's possible to make them care about foreign interference. Conservative backbenchers have really managed to make them and force them to change their tune on China and on Huawei. Um, not necessarily for the better, but they have forced it. If opposition's canny and doesn't make this about rerunning Brexit, which so far Keir Starmer has done quite well, they might be able to build a bit of a coalition of sort of some of the more serious and some of the wiser people to make it sort of at least take some action to start sort of securing our institutions again and trying to restore some kind of trust and coherence to our politics which would be, you know, quite novel now. <laughs> it's the Russia Research Group. That's what they need. <laughs> Francois, Steve Baker. Steve Baker's the man who can save us once again. Once again. <laughs> um, in, the, in the paper this week, you, 
have written about the I think oh I'm gonna hang on I've got it written down here so you say it's important to make sure our election future elections are safe and that our members of our establishment and our institutions are less vulnerable to being bought up and bought out by oligarchs who act as satellites for the Kremlin's influence apart from Steve Baker and Marc Francois how is, how is that accomplished so in a worryingly huge amount of ways like we sort of think of city jobs as respectable and almost every major sort of plank of the establishment is absolutely taking russian cash left right and center we have former attorneys general who are acting representing alleged sort of organized crime gangs linked to the russian state you have major major golden and silver circle law firms that sort of act on behalf of the major oligarchs, including a lot of pro-Putin ones. Uh, you know, the Kazakh government is well represented here. Our PR firms, our agencies take a lot of money from it. Uh, some places in the media run regular sort of supplements from Russia or from China or from other states. Uh, of course, estate agents, uh, quite literally, you know, the bricks and mortar all there uh, are for the hyper-rich, and there's, there's that sort of aspect of it. If you are an oligarch looking to launder money, launder reputation, you will find enablers of every kind in our political, our financial and our legal classes. Uh, we are sort of the, the service centre for the world's corrupt elite. And we need to scrutinise that more. And it's not really the oligarchs or Russia that we need to scrutinise on that because they're going to do their own thing. We can't control them. We can control our sort of institutions that are enabling this corruption. And that's where I think our focus should be beyond politics, because you do risk becoming a sort of client elite. Yeah, I, ju I just at this point need to need to mention that this podcast is brought to you in association with Gazprom. Uh <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Gazprom are different, you know, they are the best gas provider in my view. Uh, you know, totally independently. I have also enjoyed their gas, and so did you. Um, <laughs> I the difficult one for the for the government, James, is that the you know the, the mail, etc., would probably like us to take a really firm stance on Russia, wouldn't they? Um, do you think that that pressure is going to is going to force the arm a little bit at number ten? I mean, I think part of the problem is they are still run run by a pretty bloody minded sort of self centered possible narcissist like Dom Cummings thinks it's a virtue not to listen and not to adapt and not to change and so they seem to take pride in defying the Daily Mail which is very clearly annoying the Daily Mail and making it break with them more often I don't think that'll be a sustainable set of affairs I think once their polling numbers start to uh, hurt if they have bad local elections etc they will have to start listening to their own membership, their own backbenchers, their own media again. And they're not with them on this. The Tories have quite an uncomfortable position in that they've taken quite a lot of donors, uh, donations from donors who are sort of oligarchs themselves, connected to oligarchs, sort of pro-Putin. So there's a bit of an embarrassment there, but it's not something they couldn't deal with if they actually wanted to. And I suspect they will try as ever to dig their heels in needlessly and eventually end up having to shift. Mm. 
Yeah. I mean, in, in, in the short term, how do you see things panning out? I think we will see them try and promise some generic action and uh, do as little as is humanly possible. And my guess is number 10 will hope that none of us will mention Russia again for the next sort of four years. I think the smart thing to do is to try and build a coalition to still worry about this because otherwise it won't go away. Every election will be like this. Every intervening period we will be stirred and riled up in the ways where it's still being played. But I do think part of that is trying to not make it about rerunning 2016. You know, that can't happen now and won't happen it's you know we all care a great deal about it but we do have to look to how do we stop these things happening again rather than how do we relive old grievances yeah yeah well it's i mean it was a a, a, a fascinating report and um thank you so much james for making a bit of sense of it for us i think the the layman of which i definitely am one um maybe would would struggle with it a little bit um but you got under the skin sorry steve go on i was just i was just going to say before we let you go i mean julian lewis as a as is kind of a loose cannon now of the, the tories own creation do you think there is more trouble for the government coming out of this committee i suspect so which is unusual for that but by cutting him so visibly adrift um They've really given him no incentive to act otherwise. He's a strange character. He's not, I think, going to become a hero to new European readers in the way, say, Dominic Grieve might have to some. He can be quite a hard right winger on quite a lot of things. But he is something of a free thinker, and he's got very little to lose. And he may decide, if the government's not looking into certain other issues he thinks they should, he'll have a lot of power with the opposition MPs to shape what they're investigating. And of course they are looking into all sorts of, you know, they're looking into China, they're looking into some other quite controversial areas. And so this committee could be a lot more watchable than it usually is. Great. James, it's been an absolute pleasure as always. Please do come back and visit us again soon. Um, if if you guys haven't seen James's work in the New European, then absolutely do because it is superb. James, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Thanks, All James. Of, well, what, what do you reckon, Steve? I mean, the, the Russia report was was fascinating, wasn't it? I think James has sort of got under the skin of it, but I was just I thought, why isn't James Bond onto this? Why why did he have his feet on the desk, not really paying much attention? That was the thing that slapped me in the face about it. I was more worried about the intelligence services seemingly just going. Meh. Well, maybe he was, I don't know, maybe he was wrapped up with, wrapped up with a lady, or, or <laughs> like he normally is. Um, yeah, he's a bit more PC these days, though, isn't he? So, you know, he's, he, he definitely gets consent these days. Well, I tell you what, I, I read about five minutes before, um, before we started recording this that they were trying to get Michaela Cole from the incredible I May Destroy You on board for, for a future Bond film. I think, isn't Phoebe, hasn't Phoebe Waller bridged on a bit of script work? Yeah, on, yeah. One that is in the can and not yet released. That's um, right, she has, yeah. But, I mean, Michaela Cole would, would just complete, I mean, the idea is absurd in the first place, isn't it? Um, but, um, 
but it would be it, that would be that would be quite incredible. I thought well, it was really interesting the Russia report though. There was there was something in it for everybody, wasn't there? I think we knew that there wouldn't be any smoking gun. Yeah, but the, it felt to but, me like it throwing. Was Sorry, go on. I, it felt to me like it was one of those where, and you know, love it or hate it, you know, much of a journalist's life is spent looking at Twitter, even if it's just to get a sort of general feeling of stuff, or certainly mine is, not just Twitter by any means, but, and it, and the, the feeling from social media, and especially Twitter, was that both sides had enough to shout about, <laughs> you know what I mean? I felt like, I felt w we had some bits that were like, ah, see, and the other side had lots of bits that, like you say, the smoking gun, where they were going, well, there you go, everyone's happy. Yeah. Um, it, it didn't, I, I, it didn't quite have that, killer line did it that it went so close on numerous occasions but it didn't quite say exactly what we wanted to say and of course i think james actually in his piece uh, um a lot of people have been um a little bit confused i think about why there wasn't uh, a sort of wider um you know why it didn't investigate what happened in brexit and i think actually the the um, the uh, ISC, the Intelligence and Security Committee, it's not, it, that's not quite what it's set up to do, is it? Yeah. So, I mean, ideally, what we'd want is for a, a, an inquiry into exactly what did happen during the during the Brexit um, referendum. But, like James says, it's unlikely that it would have actually swung it either way. You know, we we often talk about the forty eight percent and. And that being a, a large figure, but James quite rightly does say that there was a lot of people between the 40, 48 percent and the fifty-two percent, and it's unlikely that more than a million people would have been swayed by a bit of. Uh, yeah, I don't. Know, play of course, down, you've but... only got to sway if, it, if the margin, if the gap is one point three million as it was, you've only got to sway six hundred and fifty thousand. But I, I, I take James's point, and I and, and I think it is, you know, I think the idea. The idea, anyway, that it was directly responsible for the—I'm with—I'm with James completely, and I and I have said this on previous podcasts and written about it in the New European and taken some criticism for it. But I do think that, the, as James says, that the, the the failure of the Remain campaign was more to do with the Remain campaign itself than to do with um, Russian interference uh, on behalf of the Leave campaign. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Although I don't really doubt that there was some. So they, no, absolutely. They, and I think yeah. actually the more important thing for me is not to prove that the referendum was. And this might sound a bit odd, but I, I'm 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 not as bothered about proving that the referendum result was false as to making sure it never happens again. That there's never any kind of Russian interference or anybody else's interference in our democracy. That actually is is longer term more important. Um, in my opinion. So, we, you know, we do need to look into it. Anyway, hopefully, and I've got my fingers firmly crossed here, because we are, we should explain, we're back in our bunkers, aren't we, Steve? We're in our respective bunkers this week, yes. Now, that's not because um, you've missed on the news and they've locked down Norfolk. Uh, they haven't. Um, but it is uh, simply because um, we're, we're in different parts of the country and we're trying to join them all up together. So we're back in our bunkers. Um, but I'm, I've got my fingers crossed. Matt Withers, are you there? I am here. Yes. I've never been... That's not true. I'm always happy to hear your voice, Matt. How are you? Yeah, I'm really, really well. been enjoying uh, listening and learning there. Oh, good. Well, you, so you missed James Ball, then. It was just me and Steve. You've yes. Been to, yeah. 
Yeah. Um, so what we wanted to do, Matt, if if you uh, if you were up for it, is a kind of end of term report because um, Parliament has uh, has dissolved for the summer. Bless them, they need their rest, don't they? Um, so, I, I, but I think first before you start, there's a few. You've got a few corrections you'd like to make from recent podcasts. Is that correct? Yeah. As a listener, I feel in last week's episode there was some disinformation about the <laughs> 1990s Britpop band Echo Belly being spread. You were quite dismissive of their back catalogue. I think you did it. Did Rightly disservice. Um, you, I think you described uh, On as being their debut and suggested that it was effectively their greatest hits album. It was actually preceded by Everyone's Got One, uh, which is a fantastic <laughs> album, included some incredibly strong singles, Bellyache, <laughs> Insomniac, uh, I Can't Imagine the World Without Me, which actually gave its name to the, uh, to the, the greatest hits album. Um, there was also 1997's Lustre, but I, I, I only remember that. I, I, rem- I remember that. I t- that's weird because I loved On for about for about four months. I loved On, but um, now you mentioned they had a they had a, a, a debut album before that. I'm aware of it, but I haven't got it. So maybe I'll check that out on Spotify. So thank you, thank you for correcting us. I, I, I believe there's another correction you'd like to make. Is that right? Well, I I, I think I have to apologise to somebody oh, because here we, here we go because it was um, we talked last week about the. Uh, the Woody Allen scene where he's he, he's in the in a demo, isn't he? And yeah. he's he's playing the is he playing the cello? It's a marching band, isn't it? It's a marching band. Right, that's right. Yeah. So I can't even remember that, despite being a, a huge fan of Woody Allen, especially. Are we going to have to correct the correction next week? It sounds like we might have to. Well, well I tell you what. I, somebody somebody tweeted us with this, and and I and I've been looking all morning to see who it was, and. But he he is he, he or she were right, and it, 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 that is not from love and death, as I said. It's from take the money and run. That's right, and that was the, the my favourite Woody Allen scene where he's he's playing a cello in a marching band, and he has to keep running in front of him and sitting down on a chair and then playing a bit and then getting up, and it, it's it, it's it's very funny. Anyway, Matt, over to you. End of term report, and I do hope you're dressed like a schoolboy, as I asked. <laughs> Not quite. I have got a shirt on today. I have got a, a freshly ironed shirt. Um, that's good. Well, that's not bad. Semblance of professionalism. Um, what you wrote on the, the Google Doc that you shared with me, and I think it will come astonishment to, to some listeners, is some form of preparation that goes into it. <laughs> oh, you've given it away. <laughs> okay. um, you, you wrote um, Starmer's worst and best moments, Johnson's worst and best moments. I'll be honest, it's more going to be Starmer's best than Johnson's worst. It's very difficult to pin uh, a great deal on Starmer. The most I can think of is, at the moment, um, he's he's very slow and rhythmic in his his dissection, but he doesn't have a great deal of fire in his belly, or at least he hasn't he hasn't shown that. Um, and that may well come, you know. He's 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 feeling his way into this new role. Um, but he is providing actual functioning prepared opposition, so I think we should give him the thumbs up on that. Um, just jotting down a few things that I thought stood out thinking about this last night. Uh, his very first appearance against Dominic Raab, where he skewered him on, on mixing up uh, testing capacity and tests actually being carried out. And I thought, would Corbyn have nailed him on that straight away? You know, probably not. We might have got something put out on Twitter two weeks later. Um, Holding up a slide of international comparisons shown at the previous day's press briefings in response to Johnson saying that such international comparisons weren't helpful. 
Um, asked by Johnson to name a single country with a functional contract tracing app, he just instantly responded, Germany, 12 million downloads. Um, but I think his best moment was yesterday, and it wasn't skewering Johnson per se. I think it was more skewering his predecessor when he said, you know, the Labour Party is under new management. And as I wrote in my sketch yesterday, it felt a little bit like Dylan at the Free Trade Hall. And you can imagine Len McCluskey shouting Judas as much as anyone's <laughs> listening to anything McCluskey's got to say anymore. <laughs> well, I think uh, for, uh, Starmer stuff is fine. And I, I, I agree, you know, I am, I'm a, a fan of Keir Starmer. But I do sometimes think, and I guess this might be his legal training, I don't know what you think, Steve, but it, it, it'd be great for him just just when he's got Boris right on the right on the ropes, um, to to be able to say to to be able to have that fire in his belly and and really really nail him, really get him on the canvas. Um, and I, and I wonder if that is just he doesn't want to be seen to be getting angry. But of course, a bit of passion and a bit of fire is is good in politics, isn't it? Uh, yes, it is, and that is, uh, I think you and Matt are e absolutely right. That is what is missing from his arsenal. He is, um, he is forensic, isn't he? He is detailed. He is very, you know, he is loyally. Um, what he isn't, and, and he's, and he, as Matt says, he is able to the command of, of facts and figures at his fingertips is is really is great, isn't it? You know. But let's go back to a couple of weeks ago when, you know, when he was, so, so when, as Matt says, when, um, when Johnson asked him a few weeks ago, you know, name somebody with a, a, a really well high functioning uh, test and trace app and he was able to say, name the country and the number of downloads immediately. So he had that, that at his fingertips. What he didn't have was a couple of weeks ago, when Johnson said, called him Captain Hindsight, um, which which bizarrely was a was a charge that he could really have seen coming, um, <laughs> but he called him Captain Hindsight. He, you know, he there are any number of things that are you know somebody like I hate to mention Tony Blair, but it, but even somebody like Gordon Brown or or David Cameron or a seasoned George Osborne, a seasoned parliamentary. Uh, somebody who knows how to fight dirty would instantly have come back with, you know, it's better to be Captain Hindsight than Captain Oversight, or what about your mate, Captain Eyesight, who went up to Durham? Ooh, ooh, that's good, I like that one. He, he doesn't have, he, he doesn't really have that in him, I don't think, Keir Starmer, so far, and it is, it is something that he is going to learn, because I, I think that you know, still on, on the which of them would you rather go for a, a pint test with, which ultimately will play, as, as terrible as it sounds, it will play a part when people finally come to decide between them. Um, I suspect that people would still, still rather go for a pint, go for, have, a, have a come dine with me than Boris John, with Boris Johnson rather than Keir Starmer. I suspect that the, the public think that Keir Starmer is... Oh, I hope he's not on that bike. Um, uh, I suspect that people think Keir Starmer is, is still a little dull. Um, he's coming out to take you to the pub, Steve. Well, I, I, I can't say I've had a pint with Keir Starmer, but I did chat to him in a pub while he was having a pint, and he was lots of fun. So, you know, I think he's got it in him. 
I, but I think he, I think my personal view, and Matt, I'll ask you what you think in a second, but my, my personal view is that it's been a really strong start from Kia. He's going in the right direction. I'd give him a very strong A minus, actually. I think we're picking really, we're clutching at straws to try and find something he's really bad at. What do you think, Matt? Yeah, I'd agree with that. Um, I think you raise a fair point, and it's possible that he might need somebody on his team with some comic chops. You know, David Cameron ah. had um, Danny Finkelstein, who, you know, you wouldn't pay to go and see at the Glee Club, but he's got an eye for a good line. Uh, Ed Miliband had Aisha Hazarika. Fat lot of good it did him in the long term, but he was cheed up with some decent lines, and I think Starmer lacks that. But no, I'd say an A- minus is, is fine. I mean, it, you know, with the caveat that he follows on from a man who every week, if he stood at the spatch box and his trousers didn't fall down, would consider that a win. Um, he's, he's made a really strong start. Oh dear, what a vision that is. Um, well, Steve, you would be, you would be perfect for, for Keir Starmer's uh, comedy wingman, wouldn't you? Uh, I could, yeah, I could certainly do that. Um, right. well, we'll get, well, available. I know if Keir, I know if Keir's, I know Keir does listen, and that's why I'm always so nice to him. So if uh, Keir would get in touch and, you know, we're happy to loan you Steve for, um, he could do you a Google Doc on it. Um, I could do you a hilarious Google Doc full of jokes, which you could, yeah, yeah which you could whip out at, at any time. While we're talking about Kia, I mean, I do want to talk about the, the his poll ratings um, next to Labour's poll ratings and why he's, he's out polling Labour so considerably. But, I mean, we should talk about what happened on... Uh, on Wednesday and Jeremy Corbyn's response to it and the fact that, you know, The Guardian, which is almost the house journal of the Labour Party, isn't it, is, is, is talking about a Labour civil war. Do you think, Matt and Richard, do you think that this is all part of Keir Starmer's grand plan? I mean, it's, you know, he did say that the first thing that he would do would be to settle the issue of anti-Semitism within the Labour Party. In fact, you know, as he pointed out, Lisa Nandy and Rebecca Long-Bailey also said that that was their top priority. Um, is, is this is it part of a plan? Is he entirely wise? I think I think that he's, he, he has done what he, he had to do, really. And for the, those people who were saying, you know, payouts... Well, I mean, my my view is that it is it is better to get this kind of thing sorted and and draw a line under it rather than rather than end up in a in a messy court battle where lawyers get rich and you know the only people with blood on the floor are the people who are in the dispatch books and uh, sorry in the witness books rather than the lawyers themselves or or anyone else around it. So I I think that I think that Kia is is dealing with this problem. And, um, you know, Jeremy Corbyn is just as, he's more at sea now. Well, maybe not. He's, he's perhaps more comfortable back on the back benches. But we know what Jeremy Corbyn is like. So I, I didn't expect anything else from Jeremy Corbyn. It was an extraordinary intervention for a very recently disposed leader to make against his party. But let's face it, Jeremy Corbyn was never really that bothered about the Labour Party. He's bothered about... Um, the, the you know the the left wing and and the, and that as a movement rather than the Labour Party that is just the the vessel for him to have got to the top and had a crack at number ten which ultimately of course he failed at. 
there's a phrase, something like, um, even the dinosaurs roared one last time before becoming extinct. I think it's something like that. And that's what like, this Corbin is, basically. You know, I was completely What dismissed. kind of dinosaur would he be? Corbin? <laughs> uh, well, he'd obviously have to be a, a non-meat-eater. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I'll give that some thought while I'm <laughs> while, I, while, while I'm talking. I um I was completely dismissive of those people who said that uh, after winning the leadership, Starmer would have to make some kind of accommodation with the hard left. Um, he absolutely had to set them adrift. You know, they've got nowhere to go now. Um, we don't need to hear um, Aaron Bastani and Kerry Ann Mandoza popping up on Five Live anymore. You know, they, they had a moment. It will be remembered as a weird anomaly in Labour Party history. It'll be studied years, decades down the line, but I think it is firmly over now. Um, and it's, it's, a, you know, it's a civil war, but it's not, you know, it's not one of two competing fractions of equal size. You know, it's the, it's the Falklands as much as it's a war. And, yeah. and, and I mean, I'm slightly less taken you know i'm slightly less taken with keir starmer's start than than the new guys are but i do think he has made a good start that's because you're a communist well it is it's yeah it's because i'm a dinosaur um steve give us your last roar but um but you know the tories we're, we're we're still at the start of this session the tories were polling 45 46 percent and labor were between six to ten points behind, and that hasn't changed at all. It, it has not changed one bit. There was a, there was a, a, a couple of weeks, wasn't there, at the height of people's misgivings over Cummings and the handling of coronavirus, when the lead slimmed uh, a little bit. But you know, there's not been a, there's not been a single Labour lead, and and it, it's back to between six and ten. So so why is that? I think it's two things. I think it's partly there's still a give them a give them a fair go uh, aspect amongst the British populace. Um, it's creeping in that they they've made an almighty hash of this. But I think uh, amongst a lot of people, not people who listen to this um, podcast, I suspect, um, still think, well, what would anybody else have done in these circumstances? But that that will make cut through. The other thing that needs to make cut through is the people around Starmer. I think people look at him and they like him, but he has filled his shadow cabinet predominantly with non-household names. We, we need to remember that we follow politics um, very closely and we assume that everybody knows who Lisa Nandy is. They haven't got a clue. Nobody knows who Nick Thomas Simmons is. I only found out in the last few weeks that it's Annalisa Dodds and not Annalise. You know, these are... These are people who really, um, and I think in the live podcast a couple of weeks ago, Alistair Campbell made exactly this point. Um, Blair already had a, uh, a, a ready for government uh, cabinet around him. You know, he had big established hitters um, from Margaret Beckett to Jack Straw to David Blunkett. Starmer has deliberately parked a few people, you know, that you might have expected to have, um, have big roles in the, in the cabinet and put people with clean hands in but they are people who have got no public profile and they need to make a big effort to build on that, to show that he's not a one-man operation, that he's got a strong team around him. I agree absolutely, Matt, with that. But what I, what I would say is I think that that is, and I think you alluded to the fact that it is on purpose. And I think that when, you know, when Tony Blair, let, let's be honest, John Smith would have probably won 
the next election and had you know had moved and and even Kinnick before that although unsuccessful at the ballot box had moved Labour in very much in the right direction over a lot of years Keir Starmer is is almost like that Neil Kinnock character starting again in the early 80s you know so it, it is going to take time I think it's easier these days and quicker to build a political profile but my view, uh, if I was advising, and I'm no, nowhere near qualified, of course, but if I was to be advising Keir, would have been Keir first, then, you know, nine, 12 months down the line, we will start to build up the profiles of the people around him. Because the, the view of the Labour Party, clearly after the results of the last election, was fairly toxic. And, and I, I understand why it was toxic in this household. Um, so I think... I think it's the right. I think it's right, and I think they're playing a long game. That you know, they're not expect. Well, of course, we're not going to have an election for many years now, um, unless unless something extraordinary happens, um, and I don't see it. So, Keir has got the time, um, says the Keir Starmer fan club president, Richard Porritt. What about what about Johnson then? Let's let's just talk about Johnson because it does seem that he is becoming even more Trumpy. You know, his his appearances against Starmer and his appearances generally in the Commons, Matt, which you've written about a lot, just seem to be comprised of bad jokes, bluster, and then what you can't say in the House of Commons is is lies. Yeah. But again, we saw this on Wednesday. He said, Keir Starmer said nothing about, or he was slow to move on, on Salisbury, and immediately Keir Starmer was able to say well I was I said this on on this day we we came out that we came out very strongly he's by the way Keir Starmer's tactic of of asking Boris Johnson to apologize for things and to correct the record um isn't working is it because he never apologizes and and the speaker doesn't make him correct the record um but I just wonder what you think about I mean Johnson has been poor hasn't he I think he's been exceptionally poor in, in the chamber. Um, this is not his thing. You know, he, he doesn't like being queried and questioned. He's not used to it. You know, I dabbled in a bit of COD psychology in a, a PMQ sketch a few weeks ago and suggested that, you know, he was never said no to as a child. Um, and he's, he's wondering who this guy is opposite, demanding answers of him. And, and you're right, he's becoming um, considerably more... Trumpian. I think he's particularly struggling because these games are being played effectively behind closed doors. You know, he needs an absolutely full chamber of these wet behind the ears, red wall, newbie Tory MPs are just going to cheer on anything he says. And his masking of his loose grasp of facts with irreverence really does depend on that kind of wall of sound from his sycophantic backbenchers to carry him through. Um, he doesn't appear to do uh, any preparation. I have no idea what he does on a on a Wednesday morning. You know, he comes across having I've spent. I've got a fair a... idea. <laughs> well, yeah, we know how he how he uh, spent his time um, when he was mayor of London. Um, he came. A, he comes across having spent the previous two hours, you know, drumming on his desk like George Costanza working on the pencil <laughs> file in, in Seinfeld. And it means that first of all, he he's increasingly reliant, regardless of the question in hand, on this. Um, childish call and response shout to 40 new hospitals and 50,000 new nurses, but he's not got the numbers behind him 
for that to cut through. And then increasingly, um, there's actual physical anger, you know, the finger pointing, uh, the, the slapping of the dispatch box. I think I've used the word hysterical two weeks in a row now because he, he has come across like that. It's, it's very Trumpian. It, it's an incredible amount of anger that he, he cannot mask. He, he, he cannot do the deep breath and the roll of the eyes that Theresa May could do. Well, I agree. I mean, I think, you know, I think Boris Johnson is, uh, it, it, it has been, has been wobbling really since, you know, since probably mid, mid February, um, when it became very clear that 2020 wasn't going to be about a celebration of Britain winning, um, with regards to Brexit, you know, I think the last time he probably slept soundly was the, the night when all the, uh, when all the Brexiteers waved their flags in, in Parliament Square, which I think was January 31st, wasn't it? I mean, since then, we, we, it would al it's already becoming clear then, but February was taken up by this this existential fear that this pandemic was going to sweep across us. Of course, it did, and it is, and it will continue to do so. And, and since then, um, Johnson's government has been has been fairly inept. Uh, again, I will say with the slight caveat of, of the financial interventions um, to, for, the, for the most part. But... I think the fact that he is having to face up to Keir Starmer and the word forensic is somewhat scoffed at now uh, because we use it to describe Keir all the time, but that is the exact thing that Boris Johnson doesn't want. And, um, and you know, it's absolute, absolutely perfect situation for, for Keir and a bit of a nightmare for Boris Johnson. And I don't, I think there was a slight, maybe two or three weeks after the first PMQs uh, with Boris and Keir, there was a slight improvement um, from Boris Johnson, but since then, I, I don't think there's been an improvement at all. I think, it, it, if, if anything, it, it slipped back. And I don't know if it's a lack of prep. I mean, they've certainly got people behind who will be doing that. Or if it's just, like you say, this is not Boris Johnson's arena. This is not what he does. Um, he would be far happier... Um, you know, much like Trump having a having a rally of supporters there, rather than having to having to have a, a you know a, a weekly um, debate about it. And that's why I think PMQs is so fantastic and so important because it it really shows um, how good these people are. And I think for Boris Johnson, it's proving what I think most of us already knew. And I think perhaps a lot of people even who voted for him knew is that he is not a super sharp-minded, um, fantastic uh, debater. Or, or is I mean, that is one thing, but I don't think he's on top of the, the facts either, really. He's very much a broad-brush kind of leader. And in a time when we need, where every detail is, is you know, really is um, potentially... Um, endangering lives we really could do with the prime minister who is a bit more on top of his brief so just to add, uh, richard you mentioned what february was taken up with because it was also taken up with the prime minister thrashing out his divorce deal yeah and i do wonder if this is why he appears to loathe the fact that starm is a lawyer so much every week <laughs> he makes a joke lashing out at him in his, his briefs uh, i wonder if the prime minister had a particularly uh, unfortunate outcome of his dealings with lawyers earlier this year uh, well, I, 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 you know, I, I perhaps, <laughs> I, I think, um, I think Boris Johnson's not the only person who's been stung by lawyers in recent years, but I wouldn't hold it against them as a group of people. <laughs> 
Well, it's not like he himself had a particularly noble career as a, a paramedic. You know, he, he was an editor of a newspaper, which, uh, well, magazine, which he appeared to spend most of his time behaving like Robin Asquith. Uh, and then a, was a comic commentator for the Telegraph, uh, but he, he appears to place himself in much higher regard than a former director of public prosecutions. Yes, well, I mean, Keir Starmer is obviously one of this country's most decorated and honourable uh, legal minds. I don't think he would... Um, I, I think if, if, if Boris is getting um, divorce lawyers and human rights lawyers mixed up, then I would be not in the least bit surprised. Uh, but, but, but there you go. Um, so I tell you what, why don't we give, why don't we give, uh, I, I said A minus for Kier, and there seemed to be some agreement on that, other Steve being a big communist probably thought it was a D or something, but what, what about, what about Johnson, what are we thinking? I'd give him a D, I don't yeah. think he's been up to the task, I think he's, he has been um, an exceptionally poor Commons performer, um, completely, he doesn't have the facts at hand, uh, he relies on bluster on uh, answering, I mean, completely inappropriate questions. One other thing that I think is interesting is that the Prime Minister has the, the upper hand in PMQs because he gets the final answer. Yeah. And no comeback on the sixth one. And Starmer, I think, has been quite cute trying to use that to ask a question on uh, a matter of uh, incredible importance. So last week it was... Um, how what he should say to the families of coronavirus victims and this week it's the Chinese treatment of its Muslim population and I think the thinking is Johnson can't turn that into an attack line yeah uh, but Johnson is so poor that he has and he's got away with it so he, he's you know he was asked about um China's mistreatment of its Muslim population and he came back with some awful joke about um Starmer having more flip-flops than Bournemouth Beach which he'd obviously decided he was going to use regardless of the question but it mm. was so tin-eared um but he gets away with it but I'm going to give him a d yeah yeah I, I mean I, I it's difficult with 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 governments I think to rate just the prime minister I think you know I, and I got some stick for this on the pod but I was supportive of the the Chancellor going into the coronavirus, and I remain so. And I think without without Rishi Sunak, and he's not proven at all, um, I don't for a minute think that he's proven, but without number 11 as a whole, um, I think I think Boris Johnson really would be on his knees. I think um, I think that there is still some goodwill towards the government from the, from the public because of how that's been handled. But that aside, I agree, it's been a, a, a catastrophic first seven months um, for the prime minister, and, and he and he should be worried because he's actually got an opposition that's getting its getting its shit together now. Um, Steve, anything to add? No, I'm going to give him. Uh, I give I give Johnson a C minus and and, and Starmer a, a, a B. I, I'm, I'm I still think there's more, a lot more to do with with Starmer, though. You know, obviously we, he's got 45 months. Uh, regrettably, in which to do it, hasn't he? Yeah, and the other thing is, he's got to be. Starmer's got to be better than Johnson um, in that time. You know, it's got to be an A and A plus for him to overturn eighty seats of majority. So, you know, he's got he's got to be far better than the prime minister. Um, yeah. You know, a B won't do it. If it, no, if it is no, if it is no. a B and a C minus, then we'll have another Tory government. So, um, you know, that's that's how the electoral system works. Mr. Withers, an absolute... Well, shall, we, shall we keep Matt on for the oh, quiz? 
Yeah, yeah. Let's keep you on for the quiz. But but are we going to keep? Well, what, how, how, but isn't that a bit of a tease? Because we won't give him the answers until Brexiteer. Well, why don't we just do it? Why don't we just do it right now? And then if you can think of the answer, right? Give us the five questions, and then me and me and Matt will will come back with the answers. I'm gonna I'm gonna read you the questions out right now, and then okay. I will go through them one by one, and you can you can. You know, we'll, we'll go. We'll we'll go. Matt first, as he's the as he's the guest. He is. So, so question one is: During a 1994 visit to Washington D.C., uh, this comes, by the way, from a biography of the Clintons. During a 1994 visit to Washington D.C., Boris Johnson was found standing near the White House late at night. Boris Yeltsin. Boris Yeltsin, not Boris Johnson. That was an exclusive. I meant to say these are all Russian-related questions, aren't they, because of the Russian report. Boris Johnson in his pants outside the White House. 1994, Boris Yeltsin is visiting the Clintons. He's found outside the White House late at night. He's wearing only his briefs and a T-shirt, and he's trying to flag down a taxi. What explanation did Boris Yeltsin give to the security detail that found him? That is question one. Question two, why was a Russian teapot given to the Queen in the 1980s removed from Balmoral in 2008? Russian teapot? Question three, why is it thought that Vladimir Putin brought his large black Labrador Coney into a meeting with Angela Merkel in 2007? Yeah, know that. Question four... How did Gavin Williamson, then the Defence Secretary, rebuke Russia after the Salisbury nerve agent attack in March 2018? Yeah. And question five, what did Mikhail Gorbachev do in 1997 that Gareth Southgate had done in 1996? All right, I'm pretty confident with these ones. What do you reckon? Let's go, let's go, we'll go back to question one. And Matt with us to answer first. So during the 1994 visit to Washington, Boris Yeltsin was found standing near the White House late at night. He was wearing only his briefs and a T-shirt. He was trying to flag down a taxi. What explanation for his behaviour did he give to the security guards who found him? Ah, well, I'm pretty confident on the, the final three, not so much the first two. Um, I've no idea, so I have to say what I would say in the unfortunate events that I was found in such a situation... <laughs> And that a fire alarm had gone off in his hotel? No, I know this. I know this because I read it's from the Clinton tapes, uh, which is which is the book of the tape. T- you know, they tape the famously, of course, they tape the uh, Oval Office and telephone conversations and stuff. He was and he was staying. Oh, what's the place called? Um, is it the Blair? I think it's Blair House or something like that. Called Blair House. That's he right. Yeah. We're staying there, and of course, we all know that that Mr. Yeltsin liked to drink, and I think drink had been taken. That's certainly what um, Bill Clinton suggested, uh, if my memory serves. And he was trying to uh, go and get a pizza. He wanted to get a pizza. That's correct. And I think he did uh, another on another occasion. I think he did the same thing, and it was the next even. Night. The next, the next night, he, he did the same thing, yeah. <laughs> Nothing if not consistent. Brilliant, brilliant. Okay, uh, <laughs> question two. Why was a Russian teapot, which was, had been given to the Queen uh, as a present uh, from Russia in the 1980s, why was it taken out of Balmoral in uh, 2008? 
Uh, again, no idea. I'm going to say it was found to be full of polonium. I've got... <laughs> I've also got no idea, but what I would guess at is that it, it depicted perhaps uh, something from the Russian Revolution, some, some member of royalty being beheaded or something? Uh, it's it's uh, neither neither nobody nobody gets a point for that one it was uh during a security sweep of balmoral in 2008 uh, they poked inside the internal wirings of this thing because it was an electric teapot an electric <laughs> samovar which apparently was a great favorite of the queen mother but it'd been unplugged since the death of the queen mother and um they they found dubious wiring in it which uh which they, uh, which they suspected wow. might have been, you know, might have been, uh, well, basically a teapot might have been spying on, a Russian electric teapot might have been spying on the royal family. So it was removed by the security service. That's great. Yeah. Question three then. Matt Withers to answer first as the guest. Why, why is it thought, obviously there are, t there are two answers to this, why is it thought that Vladimir Putin brought his large black Labrador Coney into a meeting with Angela Merkel in 2007. That is because Angela Merkel has a phobia of dogs. This is, this is, this is true. This is very true. Now, to spoil it somewhat, he brought, his, he brought his dog Coney into all meetings that he had with people in about a two-year period. Um, but Angela Merkel does have a well-publicised fear of dogs. She was bitten by a dog in 1995, um, and the, the the video of Angela Merkel um, seeing this dog walk in is is um, is, is well, she's she's quite worried about it from the start. Um, but that's right. So that's one. That is one all. How did Gavin? Can Lewis I just? Can I just? Talk? Can I just say I also knew the answer to that. Well, you don't get a point for knowing the answer. How, what do you mean? How does this quiz work? I, I, I what is, I, Matt just wins if he knows the answers. What, what if it's, I, he has to get it wrong for me to win? Well, I think you're the incumbent, aren't you? But I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll ask this one first to you, shall I? Which one is I it? Think, I probably I don't think you probably both know the answer to this one. How did Gavin Williamson rebuke Russia after the Salisbury nerve agent attack in March of 2018? Do we have to get the wording absolutely right? Well, I don't, I don't think so. I don't know. You don't care about the order. You have to get it absolutely right for the to be president of the United States at the end. <laughs> I think he said, did he say go away and shut up or something like that? Russia should shut up and go away. That's uh, right. Yeah. I've got shut up and go away. And if this was countdown, I would now be showing my pad to see the dent. <laughs> Uh, I think you, I think it's I think we're tied, aren't we? I think we're tied. So it goes. It's going to go to the last question, and I, and gonna, I won't give I'll you. Tell you what, I'm I am I'm I am I'm a competitive soul, so I'm going to you answer this. I'm going to text it to Steve okay. while you're asking it. This is great. Okay, so the so the question for Matt Withers first. What did Mikhail Gorbachev do in 1997 that Gareth Southgate had done in 1996? I believe he appeared in a TV advert for a uh, chain of pizza restaurants. Oh, he did. Let's check your phone, Steve. And we've got, what have we got? You said that Mikhail Gorbachev missed a penalty in semi-finals of the <laughs> European football competition. Me and you both know it says Pizza Hut advert. It does say Pizza Hut advert. So, um, so it's an inconclusive tie, unlike PMQs. <laughs> Uh, which has been fairly one-sided. 
um, although not as one-sided as some people might say. Um, it's a, it's a, a tie. Um, well, that was good. Thank that you, was very good. Thank you, Matt Withers. It is a pleasure to have you uh, involved in the podcast, and I guess we'll hear from you next week or in the coming weeks. Thank you very much. Thank you. Brexit of the Week is next. Brexiteer of the Week. Welcome back. It's time to do Brexiteer of the Week. But for that was a good quiz, Steve. I enjoyed that. That was good. Thank you. We aim to please. The quizzes are good. Your quizzes are good. I'll tell you what. By the way, if any listeners to the New European Podcast would like to send in a quiz, I was just going to say exactly that. If you know anyone who wants to, my email is on my Twitter handle. Email me five quiz questions, and we'll see if we can get some on the pod. I think that'd be a really good idea. That'd be good. We won't Google them either. Not like no, no, we don't. Normally. No. <laughs> As if I even look at your Google Doc before we start recording. <laughs> it's not worth it, frankly. No, it's nonsense, isn't it? Right then. Frexiteers of the week, Steve. Uh, let's start with Andrea Leadsom. Um, <laughs> did you see what she said on Politics Live about Pretty Patel? Uh, I think I did, actually. She said, Pretty Patel is a very warm and empathetic human being. Ah, yeah, that'll be it. <laughs> um, and I, it just, it reminded me how warm and empathetic Pretty Patel was in 2016 when she was backing Theresa May to be the leader of the Conservative Party against Andrea Leadsom. And she said, look at how narrow Labour's appeal is now. Uh, if Andrea Leadsom is elected, we could end up in that situation. It then becomes very difficult to govern. Um, Alok Sharma, uh, he, he's very, I think this is his first appearance, business minister, obviously. He was yeah. one of the, the, the earliest adopters, I can remember, of the sensible wing of the Conservative Party for a, um, for a referendum. I, I, he was banging on about having a referendum, I, I seem to remember, a good 10 years, if not more, before the referendum even took place. And this week... He has tweeted, seamless trade is vital for our economy, boosting business, supporting jobs and ensuring consumers get the best deal. Our internal market plans will make sure it's business as usual, with trade continuing to flow between all four nations of the UK. Mm. Um, and I just, it's great, isn't it, that we, you know, we will still be able to have the free movement of lamb's wool to land's end and oats to John O'Groats. But how does this thing about having seamless free trade being vital for our economy, how does that square with the tariffs and checks and FAF and red tape Brexit that Alok Sharma and his colleagues are all about to uh, inflict on all four nations of the, the UK, even though two of the nations didn't want Brexit in the first place? Uh -huh. um, Tim Martin has been, uh, has been ranting. You might have read about... Uh, this in the uh, the latest issue of Private Eye, um, Tim Martin has said uh, he's ranting about the press. He's very upset about Kathleen Moran, particularly uh, Kathleen Moran from the Times, um, who has repeated that uh, what somebody uh, what well, somebody on Twitter called Tim Martin the c-word, and Kathleen Moran uh, reported that in her column and. Tim Martin says she's called me the C word and it's unacceptable. Anyway, Tim Martin in Weatherspoon's News, this is, which is the sort of 
in-house uh, magazine of Weatherspoons. Is that being printed at the moment? Obviously, I don't go into Weatherspoons because I'm I've... part of the <coughs> Remainer Elite. But I don't, I, don't, well, I don't know why you're asking me. Well, I don't know. Maybe somebody can tell us. Um, I maybe... have to say, though, a little, I have to be uh, full disclosure. It's available online. That's where I read it. It's available online. All right. Well, I t- my, w- w- on the evening, that, that just before full lockdown on March 23rd, I think it was the Wednesday before, Boris Johnson stood up and said, right, we, all pubs will be closed from tomorrow, sort of thing, um, while, you know, while we figure out how to deal with this. And I was walking home and i thought well do you know what i should i think i might just pop in and get one last pint you know and and don't know when i'm ever going in a pub again um but but it was a thought that had come to me when i'd already sort of left the city and was and was halfway halfway back and i thought well i'll just go in the next pub and it was it was a a, a witherspoons a witherspoons pub uh, that i went in for that final beer Um, Shame shame on me yeah yeah and and you know it was it was fine, but um, uh, but I, I mean, I I'm, I haven't been in since. I've no I've no desperate plans to go back to uh, that Weatherspoons pub. Um, but he, in this in his column in Weatherspoons News, where he's very upset about Captain Moran, one one phrase leapt out to me, and it was this: the press often bends the truth out of any recognisable shape in pursuit mm. of a story. Tim Martin said, the press all, often, but not always, bends the truth out of any recognisable shape in pursuit of the story. And that took me back to, was it last summer when you and me went to see Tim Martin and then we had a chat with him? Was and it last summer? During his speech, I think it was last year, wasn't it? And during his speech, he said that EU tariffs were stopping Britons from getting a great deal on Brazilian oranges basmati rice from Bangladesh and Australian wines. And afterwards, we said to him, none of that's true, is it? And he said, well, it's not really, but it's it's because the tariffs are so complex to understand. So I'm wondering whether, you know, it, is it only the press who often but not always bend the truth out of any recognisable shape in pursuit of a story? Um, I do like to, I, I, there is something about him that I quite liked him, Martin, and I, we did walk, both warm to him slightly. Oh yeah, he's a, he's one of those um, he's one of those characters that I, I absolutely disagree with him politically and disagree with his business model. I think the fact that they've taken all that, um, you know, that our taxes have have gone into keeping Weatherspoons open, and now they're undercutting. Pubs, you know, with super cheap beer, many pubs that are much smaller, of course, where the pubs tend to be quite large um, and therefore more easy to reopen with social distancing. So somewhat sticks in my gullet. But, um, yeah. but, but but he's one of those guys, and do you know what? And people will hate me for this, but the Nigel Farage is a bit like this as well. Um, you almost want to go for a beer with him just so you can have an argument with him. Do you know what I mean? You can I, I'm wondering whether I would never want to go anywhere near Nigel Farage, um, but Tim Martin. I, I wonder whether I like him. I, 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 I don't think I like him, but I wonder whether I warm to him because he is so easy to prove wrong. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. But he's like um, he, the, these characters are like you know in a group of friends at university. However, there is always one like this who you, you can't quite fathom out why you quite enjoy spending time with them because everything about them is opposed to what you are, yeah, but exactly. there is something about, and that's fine. That's great because we're, 
What, what you know, what I bang on and on and on about is is that this country and we're as much to blame as Remainers after the um, after the referendum as anyone else. Um, but this country has forgotten how to agree to disagree. Now there are some things you shouldn't agree to disagree on. I absolutely agree with that. You know, we shouldn't Echo have. Belly. We, no, I, I'm a fan of Echo Belly, and I, I forgot to tell him actually, but I did notice while he was on. Echo Belly liked a tweet that we put them in with regards to this podcast earlier. So Matt will be over the moon. But, you know, it wouldn't be okay to go, I would like to agree um, to disagree with you, Adolf Hitler. You know, I'm not talking about that. But on, but on points of politics, it's all right to agree to disagree and still quite like someone. I mean, you know, I don't think we quite liked him, Martin or Nigel Farage. But what I'm saying is... Um, there, there's something. There is something charismatic about both those men. Uh, we'll re- we will return to <laughs> in a second. Richard Porrick, Nigel Farage is very charismatic. Yeah, That's yeah, what's yeah. going to be all over Twitter, isn't it? <laughs> uh, Anne Widdicombe is a Brexiteer of the week. Um, she doesn't like masks in shops. Uh, I'm going to. She's going to avoid the shops as much as possible right. um, because she doesn't want to wear a mask. I'm, I'm, no. I will say nothing. Um, she has had a big idea, however, which she wrote about in the Daily Express. Shops should allow certain hours where the mask dissenters can shop unmuzzled in the same way as they have allocated special times to the elderly. That's Anne Widdicombe's big idea. And I think that is great. If we can now negotiate with the COVID-19 virus and persuade it to take the hours of 8am to 9am off... And not infect anybody during that time. I think she's on to a winner there. So congratulations. Hey, on, um, on the masks, I've got to tell. I've got to tell you this. On the masks, I am. I am over the moon. I am so pleased today because um, uh, recently I went into my local Morrison supermarket and I was wearing my mask. Okay, and uh, I, I'm fine with the masks. The masks, no problem. Happy to wear a mask. And I bought two chicken and mushroom slices and one bottle of Peroni beer. And I went to the um, self-service checkout. And the obviously, you don't have to wait for it to be authorized. And a lovely young lady came over to authorize it. And guess what she said? Can I see your ID, please, sir? <laughs> yeah. And I went, oh, my God, I'm over the moon. So I got out, dear listener, you should know that by this time next month, I'll be 40 years old. I got out my driving license, and she looked at it, and she went, I can't really see your face, I'm afraid. Can you take your mask off? She made me remove my mask and before she'd okay it. How cool is that? And that is very cool. Was it? Were you wearing a full face mask of a much younger person? No, I was wearing a crash helmet with a full visor. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. She's just doing her job. Good for her. But I was, I was chuffed, you know. And I am. I think you'll admit a very handsome and you know youthful human. So, uh, well, a human certainly. <laughs> um, the Brexiteer of the week is your mate, by the way. It's not oh, for us. <laughs> I want to just I, 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 listen. I'm not saying I like Nigel Farage, or that I'm his friend, or that you know. 
we play golf together or anything. I'm just saying that, it, you know, I can understand the appeal. Uh, yes. Um, <laughs> have you seen what's happening in Italy, by the way? Um, this, is, this has been brought on because yesterday, when you're listening to this, um, on Thursday, the it's, Italy's version of the Brexit party has launched and uh, it is called the No Europe for Italy party. Mm. Um, wait, and it's headed by a guy called uh, uh, Juan Luigi Paragoni. He mm. used to be um, in Five Star. What, um, it's that brilliant band from the eighties. I've got some of their seven-inch vinyl. He used to be in Five Star. He got he got kicked out of Five Star. Not even not even Delroy uh, did that after after that unfortunate <laughs> incident. Um, but um, he is a, he he was in the Five Star movement. Um, he said they were talking about calling it Italexit and Quitalia, um, but he mm. said they were too anglophone. And it, it's now called No Europe for Italy. I don't know what that is in Italian. It's sort of no... It, oh, Italy. Yeah, it's No Europe for Italy. And it can, it, can be, it can have a hyphen in the middle. So it's No Europe, you know, for Italy. Um, could be that. Anyway, it's already at 7% in the polls. This guy is obviously quite popular. He used to be a chat show host. He's a right-wing columnist. Um, there's quite a lot of those around here, isn't there? And he is using Nigel Farage um, as a sort of a, a, an unofficial advisor. He said, um, "He said we've, um, w- you know, we've talked. They've, they've talked together about um, about how to to do this." Um, he said, um, "Nigel Farage is um, is a true British patriot. He is responsible." Uh, for taking the United Kingdom out of the European Union's cage. Uh, he's the man who sent away the technocrats from Brussels, and he's talking, they've talked about how to get Italy out of the cage of the EU as well. And um, I think it would be amazing if Nigel Farage ends up going to Italy. Yes. Um, spending a lot of time in Italy, because obviously after November the 3rd, his, his opportunities to go to... <laughs> The United States, I think, are going to be more limited, aren't they? I think the, the, the private jets are, uh, are not going to be flying quite as much as, as, they, uh, as they are. But I think he should probably be quiet about a few things that he said about Italy in the past. Oh, um, uh-oh. He, in 2014, he was on a Channel 4 reality show with a couple of people from Gogglebox uh, talking about things that he found funny, and he said... Uh, He'd, Hitler, he said, Hitler is not funny, but Mussolini can be quite funny. <laughs> um, he said, I met his granddaughter the other week, pretty girl, pretty girl. Um, and because, you know, Mussolini, I think, is, is commonly held to be responsible for the deaths of about a million Italians during his 20-year reign, I think it's possible that not all Italians will find Mussolini quite as chucklesome as Nigel Farage. Um, he found him so funny, in fact, that, that Nigel Farage's PR man, Herman Kelly, who was his PR man for, for the EFDD group in the European Parliament, used to call Nigel Farage Il Duce, which is, again, uh, something that I would be a bit sensitive about if I was a relative of the... Uh, some or, or some of the one million Italians uh, who were killed by Mussolini um, in his 20-year reign. Um, in 2017, 
uh, Nigel Farage stood up in the European Parliament and said, you lot are acting like the mafia. And he was booed by uh, a lot of MEPs, but largely by Italian MEPs. And that's because with, you know, some justification, a lot of Italian people are extremely sensitive um, about the, the, the mafia being bandied around. And in fact, you know, the activities of of the mafia are viewed with great national shame and he had to he, he actually withdrew that remark um, on the grounds of national sensitivities um, and in March this March Nigel Farage was at the Daily Telegraph's Heroes of Brexit event uh, in London and he said that Italy's battle against Covid-19 which at the time was going very badly if you remember yeah presented a great opportunity for Britain he said this awful crisis and the way it's gripping parts of Italy makes a trade deal with the EU easier now than it's ever been. The collapsing Italian economy needs a deal with the EU desperately. And that's the kind of person that, um, that, that uh, Nigel Farage um, is, uh, although some people like him, and, um, and I, hope he, I, hope he, he, um, I hope he delivers those kind of stump speeches um, on behalf of uh, Juan Luigi uh, Paragoni and his No Europe for Italy party. Um, I've written more about this in this week's New European, by the way. Um, I will say, by the way, that we, we spoke about Aaron Banks the other week and there was some confusion whether he was working for this right winger in the New Zealand election. And, and it turned out the right winger had denied it. But this week, Aaron Banks has been on New Zealand TV and said, yeah, I am working for him. Me and Andy Wigmore are working for him. And it just reminded me um, that in 2016, March 2016, Barack Obama did his get back to get to the back of the queue speech, didn't he? On mm. behalf of Remain. Aaron Banks launched a back off Barack petition um, on the Leave EU website. And Nigel Farage said uh, Obama must butt out of the Brexit debate. And now you know, unelected foreigners trying to interfere in the democratic process of other countries seems to, it seems to be all the rage. It's okay again, isn't it? So Nigel Farage, your chum, is the Brexiteer of the week. Um, disclaimer, <laughs> Nigel Farage. <laughs> Nigel Farage is not my friend. I don't like Nigel Farage. I'm just saying that in a, I'd like to go for a pint with him and, you know, and argue with him. There are people you like to argue with, and Nigel has been that character for us for a long time. What would the Brexiteer of the Week be without Nigel Farage? Well, it would be a lonely place, wouldn't it? It would well, be, be a Dominican, wouldn't it? Nightmare. Um, <laughs> what should the listener do right now, Mr. Anglesey? The co-host should 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 remember the, what 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 five phrases can you must you repeat in order? Right. Okay. Uh, person, woman, man, camera, TV. It's correct. I yes. think you are the next president of the United States. But did you see that it's not actually that? That isn't. They aren't even the right phrase, are not they? The right. They're not. No. They're the, phrase not. Is, the phrase is for that. I mean, I imagine they must have done a different. This is the uh, cognitive test that he's supposed to have done. It Daisy is, actually, is in it, isn't it? Yeah. It's actually um, face. F uh, Face, velvet, church, daisy, red. There you go. That's what you've got to remember. Um, but somehow that became person, woman, man, 
camera TV. I just wonder if he would, was he just saying the things he could see? <laughs> I think he probably was. Just describe in front what's in front of you. He'll go, he'll go home and do it and he'll be like, coffee table, cupboard, yeah. glass, sideboard, Ivanka. Lady, not Ivanka, Melania. Melania. Well, Ivanka could be there. Oh, is she is she called Ivanka? Which one is Ivana? Ivana, well, wait a minute. Is Ivan, was Ivanka his second wife, first wife? I think it's, yeah. I think, isn't, oh, I don't know. I'm and, then, and then his daughter is called Ivana, I think, or something. Nirvana, I'm not sure. Anyway, what should the listener do right now? Uh, please uh, leave us a great review on your podcatcher of choice, especially important if you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts. Leave us five stars. Leave us a review. We said this last week, but we will be reading out some great reviews soon uh, and maybe some bad ones. Um, uh, we, you can like the New European on Facebook. You can join our Facebook readers group. Um, you can endlessly repeat the phrase uh, person, woman, man, uh, TV, camera, camera TV rather, and become the president, ex-president of the United States. Um, you can follow the New European on Twitter at the New European, um, and you can follow me on Twitter at Sanglesey S A N G L E S E Y. You can follow me at Porrit P O R R I Double T. And all that is left to say is thank you to our wonderful guest James Ball, a uh, person and a, and a man, and a man. Yeah, not a woman or a camera or a TV. <laughs> That is true. And Matt Withers, who is a camera. I think he identifies as a camera. Yeah. Um, Matt Withers, of course, with his brilliant end-of-term report. Thank you guys for that. Um, we will be back next week. Um, if you haven't already gone by the printed product, it's £3. It's available in all good news agents, and it is a stonker, as you would expect. Lots of politics, lots of Brexit, but also tons and tons of arts and culture as well. Steve, we'll see you next week. Until then... Mr. Campbell, play your bagpipes. Here you go. Crime to football, Brexit to folklore. For more great podcasts from Archant, head to audioboom.com slash channel slash Archant. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.